John, chapter 1, verses 29 to 42. And he writes, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak And followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into worship with your bride this morning. Lord God, we pray for those among us who are sick that aren't able to be here today, and those who are hurting among us today. Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord, through the hearing of your word, through Eucharist, and through more singing and praise and prayer, Lord, we pray that Your spirit would descend upon us, Lord, and open our hearts and our minds and our ears to believe and to hear and to understand what you have proclaimed in your word. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, last week uh, we celebrated the baptism of the Lord. And our sermon time, our homily time, was defined primarily by this statement. Because I said it a lot. And it was this. Christ has identified with us in his baptism so that we might identify with him in ours. And now I think this statement is both fundamentally true and theologically true. But today's text and really every other subsequent text that we'll look at, look at throughout the season of Epiphany require us to amend that particular statement slightly. And it's this. Christ has identified with us in his baptism So that, by following him in baptism, he becomes our identity. Now let me explain, and we will look at our text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. 
And then in Colossians chapter 3, he tells the Colossians, he says, If then, if you have been raised with Christ in baptism, because you have been buried with him in baptism, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And then furthermore, he tells the Galatians this. He says, I, or we, could apply this to ourselves, we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so by his baptism, Jesus has identified with us so that also by his death and his resurrection, by grace through faith and belief in him, he has not only become our righteousness, but our identity in both life and in death. And so our text for today, I think, begins to help us understand how this works. And it starts first with one more testimony from John the Baptist. And so while Jesus does identify with us in his baptism, he was also very publicly made manifest. He was publicly revealed to be the Christ in his baptism by John. And so for me, if you're like me, my brain likes to put things in chronological order or sequential order. So really, we could think of this text almost kind of like a part two from last week. Where we read this in Matthew chapter 3, we read this. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then we read, The next day he saw Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is able to recognize Jesus as the Christ in his baptism. And interestingly, what John does in this text, in this paragraph here, if you want to put a little marker between verses 34 and 35, that's where the paragraph ends and begins. But John uses a phrase here in two verses in this paragraph that really has caused many a head scratch for the last 2,000 years. Because twice here he mentions that he did not know Jesus until this moment. He says this, again, verses 31 and 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And then again in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, again, what do we make of this? We asked last week, as we were looking at Matthew 3, how much did John know about Jesus prior to meeting Jesus on the banks of the Jordan? Now, we discussed how this worked in the Gospel of Matthew, because at least in Matthew, they had not met at this point. But thanks to Luke's Gospel, we know that Jesus and John were cousins. But there does seem to be, and this is consistent through the Gospels and even further in the Gospel of John, there seems to be a lingering question for John the Baptist as to whether or not Jesus really is the long-awaited Christ. But then, as we just read, in the moment of his baptism, John immediately recognizes Christ for who he truly is. But part of the answer for us also lies in how each gospel writer is telling the story of the ministry and life of Christ. Luke is very intentionally historical. Matthew stresses fulfillment of prophecy. He has that in mind, and he writes his gospel to stress that point. While Mark, while being the shortest, is stressing particularly discipleship and a relationship with Jesus. But John, one of the many tools, and we just spent multiple weeks going through the Gospel of John in Sunday school with Craig, but 
One of the many tools that John draws upon in his gospel is the use of signs to confirm belief in Jesus as the Christ. So, for example, in the next chapter, in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, when Jesus turns the water into wine, we read there in verse 11 that it was a sign used by Jesus to manifest his glory. And because he did so, it caused his disciples that were following him at that time to believe in him. And so here then in chapter 1, John the Baptist mentions that it is the sign of the Holy Spirit descending and resting or remaining on Jesus at his baptism that reveals him to be the long-awaited Christ. And this confirms John's belief, or as he uses here this word knowledge, this confirms his knowledge that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he confirms as much with the way he words these verses. So let me try to paraphrase in my own words. He says, I came baptizing with water so that Christ would be revealed. And he was revealed when I saw the Spirit descend from heaven and rest on him. Now, I did not know him. I did not know it was him. I did not know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ until that very moment. But now I have seen, because the Spirit has descended and rested upon him, I have seen him, and now I am going to proclaim to everyone who can hear me that this man is the Son of God. So like a prophet who receives a word from the Lord, John explains that his commission from God included a very specific clue as to the identity of who the Christ is, and that is the descent and the resting of the Spirit of God upon that person. And so Calvin writes here, he says, John had no other knowledge of Christ other than what he had obtained by divine inspiration. And so John, Calvin continues, he says, he does not proclaim Jesus as the Christ by his own authority or his own suggestion, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the command of God. And so now, having seen what he was promised he would see, John then punctuates this testimony in this first paragraph with this declaration that this is the Son of God. But, looking at this paragraph, we also see that he makes another declaration. Because, because John recognized Jesus as the Christ by the descent of the Spirit and it resting on Jesus, John is now able to also very boldly proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God. And not just any lamb, but the suffering servant lamb who will come to take away the sins of the world. And so what John is doing here by this very short statement is proclaiming, that Jesus is the promised suffering servant found in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who bears the griefs of the people who will be pierced for their transgressions and chastised for their peace. The suffering servant who is led like a lamb, like the Passover lamb, to the slaughter. And because one of the purposes of Isaiah is to pronounce a new exodus for the people of God, John compares the suffering servant to the lamb who will redeem God's people at this new exodus. And so John the Baptist, what he does here is he makes the declaration that Jesus is indeed that promised lamb. And in keeping with Isaiah's announcement that God would not only save Israel, but also the nations, John proclaims that this final Passover lamb would take away not only ethnic Israel's sins, but the sin of the whole world. And so the sacrificial act has now narrowed from many lambs to one final lamb. Calvin, again, he writes here, he says, This principle, this is the principal office of Christ, that he takes away the sins of the world by the sacrifice of his death and the reconciliation of mankind to God. And then he goes on and he says this, he says, This is the chief favor of Christ, 
and all other favors of Christ depend upon this one. That by appeasing the wrath of God, Christ makes us to be reckoned holy and righteous. And so because Jesus has identified with us in his baptism, and he has been revealed by his baptism that he is indeed the Messiah, his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world begins, to, begins the process of our identity being found in him. And we are able to see how that works now that John has made one of the final proclamations of his public ministry. We're able to see how this works with these first disciples that take up the rest of this text. And we see it beginning in the example of Andrew and this other unnamed disciple. So John, again, we read there in verse 35 or 36, he proclaims one more time, behold the Lamb of God. And then two of his disciples leave and they begin following Jesus. So here again is what is written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. He says, now, the next day, so again, now we're the following day. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So there's two ways, just in these few verses, that we can see this identification work of Christ beginning. And first, it's really in bodily language. So we see it in the body language of these particular disciples. Jesus, uh, John, excuse me, John proclaims here Jesus as the Lamb of God. No longer to the masses, but he proclaims it to his disciples. He was standing with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus walking by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then upon hearing this, immediately Andrew and this other disciple follow Jesus. They get up, and they leave John, and they go after Christ. What these are, these are the first steps of discipleship. They are, this is the first steps of finding a new identity in the person and work of Christ of leaving the old master and going after the better one. There's a deacon of the late, I believe, 3rd century into the 4th century named Ephraim of the Syrian. He writes this. He says, they, speaking of Andrew and this other unnamed disciple, they abandoned John for Christ. And then he says, and this is beautiful, he says, for the voice was not able to hold on to the disciples, but sent them to follow the word. And so it was fitting, he says, that the light of the, when the light of the sun appeared, the light of the lantern faded away. So we see it in their body language. But we also see it, we even see it in Jesus' body language. We see it here in verse 38. It says, Jesus turned and saw them following. So they not only get up and abandon John and follow Christ, but he turns around and accepts them as his disciples. But then there's another way we see it here, and we see it in one particular word. And it happens within this conversation. So again, starting in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. Do you notice how they immediately address Jesus? They don't say, hey man, where are you going? They call him Rabbi. Now, this may not be something that we think about very often, right? I mean, we don't really use that term so much in our own current vernacular. 
even a simple reading of this, it might not be something we think about very hard. But calling Jesus rabbi is a very intentional identification marker that as believers in Christ, we need to make note of. So if you're a Bible underliner, that word is perfect to highlight and underline. Because while rabbi, as John tells us here, does indeed mean teacher, there is a greater understanding of what these two disciples are doing in their own culture that we don't have in ours. There's a greater understanding of what they're doing by immediately addressing Jesus as rabbi. So these disciples, by leaving and abandoning their former rabbi and now following and pursuing Christ, what they are proclaiming to Jesus, to John the Baptist, and really to their culture, their friends, their family, etc., is that they are now to be publicly identified with Jesus of Nazareth. He is now their rabbi. And that includes every possible stereotype or stigma that might come along with identifying with this itinerant preacher that has been called the Lamb of God. And with the way in which rabbi culture worked, and really still kind of works in Judaism from a very quick internet search on my part, the way rabbi culture worked is that there was and still is an identity marker that is placed upon a student who was under the authority of a particular rabbi. To be the student of a rabbi is to be identified with him, and the goal for the student is to become as much like that rabbi as possible. Or, to use our phrase, to take on the identity of that rabbi by applying his teaching not only in their private lives, but in their very public and professional lives as well. So just to give you an example, think about the Apostle Paul and his rabbi, Gamaliel. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. So in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 and 35 and 38 and 39, we read this about Gamaliel. It says, but a Pharisee, so this is after the, some of the apostles have been arrested. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. So Gamaliel is not only a member of the council, but a very well-respected member of the council. And if you go toward the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 21 and 22, we see Paul is arrested in the temple after he returns to Jerusalem. And this is the arrest that will eventually take him to Rome. And in his defense, Paul calls upon Gamaliel, not to have him respond to him, but rather the reputation of Gamaliel. And we read this just in verse 3 of chapter 22. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So what Paul is doing, Paul, Gamaliel's reputation becomes Paul's reputation. And, he, and it's so much so that Paul uses it as an identification marker of his credentials and of his knowledge of the Scriptures as part of his defense before the council after his arrest in the latter part of Acts. And so think about how this is supposed to work in our own lives as believers in Christ. Our identity is to be so wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus 
and the teaching of Jesus that his reputation should be our reputation. And our reputation reflects upon his own in the world. He even says as much. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so speaking on this passage, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, in calling Jesus rabbi, these disciples proclaim their desire in coming to him and to be taught by him. These came to Christ to be his scholars and to be his students. And so must all of us who desire to follow after Jesus. And I think this is exactly one of the many purposes of John's gospel. He wants us to inquire about Jesus and then to go to Jesus and then to follow Jesus and then to abide with Jesus by being identified with him and in him as our master and as our rabbi. But then there's one more identity marker in this text that I want to note before we come to the table, since this is the theme, part of the theme of Epiphany this year. And, it's, and this identity marker comes in the example of Simon, whom Jesus renames as Peter, or as I figured out this week, I think we've been mispronouncing it this whole time. It's not Cephas, it's Kephas, which I find quite interesting, which messes with my ears, right? You hear Kephas and not Cephas, and it kind of drives you crazy. But it's Kephas, which I thought was interesting. But anyway, we see this in the example of Simon. And so starting in verse 40, we read this. So one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. Now, we've read this passage a lot, right? We know this passage. So why does this matter, and what does it have to do with Jesus becoming our identity or our being identified in him? So to answer this question, we have to understand exactly what Jesus is proclaiming about himself By doing this act of giving Peter a new name. And Chrysostom is really helpful here. He says this. He says, why does Christ change names? He does so to show that it was he who gave the old covenant. And it was he who altered names. It was he who called Abram and Sarai and Jacob and renamed them Abraham and Sarah and Israel. He assigned names even from before birth, such as Isaac and Samson. And similarly, believers are called Christians and sons of God and friends in his body. And so the concept of a name in the ancient world was not merely a label, but the character of the person who has been named. And the giving of a new name was an assertion of the authority of the giver. And God is the only one who has the authority to give us our true names. And so by renaming Simon to Peter, Jesus declares himself to be God. And this declaration reflects the work of Jesus in his chosen disciples. Again, as we read here, Jesus, looking intently at Peter, declares him to be a disciple by giving him a new name, an authority that belongs only to God himself. And by the authority of God and by grace through faith in Christ, we are given new names and new identities. And that identity is found in Christ himself. So just think of 
the ramifications of this aspect of being identified in Christ as it relates to our culture and, frankly, how it relates to how we proclaim the gospel to the world. Because we live in a time where people are consistently struggling with their identities. We are told in our current culture that self-identification is the ultimate marker of freedom and self-expression. But the common denominator that the world seems to miss is that each person is constantly seeking to identify themselves through principles upheld by a fallen and sinful world. Now, whether that be through sexual identity or gender identity or even by identifying themselves by only their interests or likes or dislikes or certain relationships they're in at the time. But believers, for Christians, for the church, our identity is found in Christ Jesus himself. And this is one of the many beautiful hopes of the gospel because Christ has identified himself with us by taking on our likeness, by taking on our weaknesses and our sins, by his ministry and by his death on the cross. And he identifies himself with us in our plight by undergoing baptism. And because he has identified with us, when we believe in him, when we place our eternal hope and trust in him, and when we are baptized into his death and into his resurrection, by grace through faith, our identity is found in him, both in life and in death. And so as we come to the table and make great thanks today, make thanks that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.